It's my privilege also to be here to launch this series on bibliology. Uh, the Bible is central to everything we believe, quite obviously. And what I'd like to do as far as launching this is to talk about the topic of the superiority of the Bible. And uh, that's come on some hard times lately, and it's come on hard times within circles you might not even expect. But let me start by asking you a question, and I'm not going to take vocal answers for this. If God had not revealed himself to mankind, to you and to me, and throughout the history of mankind from the very beginning, what would or could we know about him? Apart from his divine self-revelation, what would or could we know about him? And I think the answer is only one thing, absolutely nothing, nothing. Yet he has made himself known through various avenues of revelation of himself. Uh, you all remember how the first verse of the book of Hebrews starts out. And it's so important to understand that in many different epochs and time periods, as a matter of fact, talking about the constitution of the Bible and it's coming together, approximately 1,500 years from Moses until John. And so we would start to talk about 1445 and there BC, and then John writing to Revelation, which we had a synopsis of this morning in 90 AD. So you're talking about 1,500 years. So there's revelation of God revealing himself to mankind all along the pathways. And then through many different avenues or ways, and it's so multifaceted in how he has done that. And as you think about it, it goes all the way from donkey speaking to unwilling prophet uh, to people directly being given revelation and talked about passing that on to the people. So God has made himself known. And we're going to see that all those avenues really sort of come together in two basic highways, if you will. So theologically, as we put this all together, these roads of divine revelation merge into two main thoroughfares, if you will, natural revelation and special revelation. And there's one psalm that eloquently summarizes these two main highways of God's self-disclosure. So I want you to turn to the 19th psalm. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to take a little interlude, and then we're going to come back to it. So it's going to be sort of a two-part thing with something in between, which is not normally the way we go through a passage. Uh, but turn to the 19th Psalm. And this shows us these two main avenues of God's revelation to us. And they're the primary highways, if you will. These are the interstates. And some other ones feed into it. But these are the ones that indeed constitute the two major I categories here of interstate. Now, first, in the first six verses, we are introduced to God the creators. The emphasis on the creator here. God the creator's general self-disclosure in the world. The world, and that includes all the universe. And immediately, we witness in the first four verses, at least to the middle part of it here, the publication of the skies. And David is writing this as a shepherd with all that experience he had. He spent a lot of time gazing all around in nature, watching the sheep up in the skies all over. So this was something that was hands-on known to him, but now being revealed by special revelation to him as he extols the God of creation in 
the world is self-disclosure here. And it begins with its indications, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, there are two important word groups here used to talk about this activity of the whole universe and the heavens here. So the heavens are telling. That's the word group that's related to scribal activity. So it is the scribal activity of God in, in writing this all over the creation, general revelation. And then it follows up with not only the heavens constantly being telling of the glory of God, the heaviness of God, and their expanse. Uh, this is that dimension uh, of the space that goes out into all these stellar bodies, and their expanse is declaring. Uh, this is a proclamation kind of term. So we really have in these two poetic lines of verse 1 is that the heavens and the expanse is declaring through publishing and proclamating the glory and the greatness of God. So immediately we see this self-revelation as being above us and all around us in this general dimension here of self-disclosure. Now, as we move on into verse 2, we have some expanded kinds of description here. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Another interesting dynamic word group picture is here in the element of day to day, day after day, it's bubbling up. It's like a geyser. It's something that's not just sort of a drip in a faucet here. It's bubbling up and pouring forth speech. And then night by night, night after night, it's revealing, it's making known knowledge. So there's a knowledge about God that's being revealed through natural revelation all around us. And it's important to see that all of these things don't cease and take a vacation. It's all the kinds of things that are happening here, this declaration, this proclamation, this scribal work, this bubbling up, this geysering, if you will, uh, is going on ever and always never takes a rest. So God has established that creation of Genesis 1, and it keeps on doing its business. It's like a giant jumbotron, and it's above us, over our heads, and all around us. And it keeps on giving that message that shows the glory of God and the majesty of God, and it reveals knowledge about God. Now, that last statement is picked up in verse 3. There's a qualification about it here. So the, uh, the clarification is that this is a kind of communication, even though it's using these kinds of terms of telling and, and broadcasting and everything else, it, it begins by there's no speech. Isn't that a contradiction? Not really, because it uses those words to depict this as a clear communication, but it's not with those kind of verbalized words. This is an, an inaudible kind of declaration of the glory and the majesty of God and revealing his character and self-disclosure. So there's a clear communication, but it is not verbalized with words that hit your tampanic membranes and, and give you that kind of sound. So that's what it says, this clarification. There is no speech, nor are there words. And yet, notice in the middle of verse 3, their voice, even though there is a voice there, but it's inaudible, is not heard. So this is a clarification to tell us it's not doing this with soundtracks 
and beaming at us. But the communication is utterly clear throughout nature surrounding us and also above us. So at the next element is going to add the immensity of this. There, there's no place that this testimony is not permeating. So in the first two lines of verse 4, it has no space limitations. Nowhere you can escape this. No man can hide himself from this constant declaring of the glory of God. So listen to verse 4, the first two lines. Their line, and normally this is a measuring line, so you can't measure what's gone. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. So no limitations as far as space of the message that's being broadcast consistently with clarity here. So there's no measuring line you can put on this. It goes from east to west without limitations. Now, as we see in verse 4, we now come to the fact that this publication that permeates the whole planet and is above us and all around us, that the focus has started to narrow. It began with the whole universe, all of the galaxies, all the stars, everything else, the solar system, everything else. Now we see in that verse 4, those first two lines, through all the earth to the end of the world. So we're becoming more and more focused on planet earth and moving in from the biggest picture coming to planet earth, and that's the message. God has intended humankind on this planet to hear this message, even inaudible as it is, but clear as it is, through all the visible demonstrations here. So again, there's no space limitations in any of this. And with all of this, now a poetic, uh, additional poetic parallelism goes in this narrowing to the earth and our realm of being and habitation, it now points to the prominence of the sun, the sun, the center of our universe, at least astronomically. It begins in the last line of verse 4 with its residence. And all of this is very poetically pictured. And so it said, in them, that's the heavens and the earth, the whole element of our solar system in particular here, he has placed a tent for the sun. And remember, this is an agrarian society that David was writing from, and they had tents, and they were mobile, and they followed the sheep and everything else. But it was graphic of saying, he's made a house for the sun, and, and depicting it as that's where the residence of the sun is. And uh, I'll talk about it a little bit, and you say, you know, how unscientific can you get? Well, just hold on just one second. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, further similes now, as we move on. And this is among those heavens. And it's interesting that this kind of language is used throughout the Bible. Uh, let me just give you one text in point. You don't have to turn there. But listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. It is he, speaking of Yahweh God, the creator here, that we're talking about. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Notice the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants, especially us, are like grasshoppers, you know, just sort of insignificant when you take in the whole vast dimension of this creation. And listen how it describes Yahweh God here, the creator, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. You know, he's a designer. He just, you know, in the creation of Jesus, he just puts them out like a curtain all around and spreads them like a tent 
to dwell in. And there's that tent again. And so all these kinds of words were directly related to a people that were picking up on this. And they're not denials of reality, but they're very picturesque. And we even today, you know, if you watch the weather, or you pull it up on your phones or however you do it, when's the sunrise tomorrow? When's the sunset? Well, the thing is, it doesn't rise or set, but that's the kind of language. It's the language of appearance. So please don't accuse us of being unscientific and the Bible is just archaic and doesn't have any relevance whatsoever because we speak the same way and nobody starts chastening the meteorologist, you know, saying, well, you're not really scientific at all. Guy might have a PhD and miss it, you know, but that doesn't say anything. So we're seeing this as the language of appearance. So now this focuses on the prominence of the sun. Its residence begins, as I said, right there. In them he, that is creator God, Yahweh, has placed a tent for the sun. And by the way, the sun is a created instrument for warming the earth, as we'll see in a minute. But in the ancient or eastern cultures around Israel, the sun and all kinds of other heavenly beings or, or bodies were personified as gods. And they would worship the sun, they would worship the moon, they would worship everything around them. But not here. This is a created feature within our universe, within our solar system, for the benefit of mankind. So God created the sun. It's not to be worshipped like some of those other surrounding countries did of Israel in those early days. So among them, that is the heavens... The creator pitched the tent for the sun. Now, further resemblance in verse 5, using a couple of similes here. It goes on, which it or he, that refers back to the sun, is as or like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And you ladies that have studied the Bible long enough and understand ancient or eastern custom, um, I'm sorry, but the bride is not the big deal in the ancient or east. The groom was, and the bride sort of waited around for him to get dressed up and brilliant and everything else to go pick her up on the way in this procession. And so that's the focus on the bridegroom. So he's depicted as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And, and you know, you have the parable, for example, going back uh, into the New Testament that Jesus gave us uh, in chapter 25 of Matthew, and you have the virgins with some had the oils in their lamps, some did not. But the thing was the bridegroom would come out of the chamber. That's the kind of imagery we have here, and these people would pick up on it. And so he's depicted here as the bridegroom, and great light would surround that as the torches and everything else would follow him on the way to pick up a bride. But here it's talking poetically about the sun. And so it also is depicted as a strong runner, and you can see that in the last line. It rejoices as a strong man, like an athlete, a very in-shape athlete to run his course, to run his race. As a matter of fact, listen to a highly poetic chapter in the book of Judges, one verse out of it, that end verse, verse 31 of Judges 5. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends, may they be like the sun as he rises in his might. So the element of the race running and the might, the strongness, a triathlete kind of imagery here, and not only that, the brilliance that goes along with it. And then it talks about its range in the first two lines of verse 6. 
And these two poetic lines sort of pick up, respectively, the first line of verse 5 and then the second line of verse 5. And, and this is another ancient Eastern way of talking about from east to west. Sun, quote-unquote, rises in the east and it sets in the west. So this is the kind of language. They had other idioms describing east to west, uh, but this is one that they would use in verse 6. Is rising, coming up, is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit as it makes its way to the other end of them. So you can see that's rising to setting of the sun depicted in poetic form here. So we have all of this depicting the sun as a revelation, part of a revelation of the creator God self-disclosing himself to humankind. And then finally, we see in the last line of verse 6, it's rays, it's rays. Indeed, the sun sustains physical life on our planet. So you can say, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, you know heat can sort of scorch. It can also cool down, but it's necessary for life to grow things and photosynthesis and all those kinds of things that God planned in intricate balance. So as we see this great, great revelation of God through an unvoiced but very clear proclamation of his glory and all of his might and creation and then narrowing it down to the planet Earth and the sun's prominence and all these kinds of things, it shows that this is significant as far as God revealing himself to humankind. Yet, in the light of that clarity, and it is clear and it is powerful, but it cannot in and of itself produce spiritual life. It sustains physical life, for example, because of the sun, but it cannot sustain and produce spiritual life. And yet, as I said, there is absolutely no deficiency in the universe's role of broadcasting the glory of God. Every non-human created thing, we've been talking about created things, Every non-human created thing is a faithful servant, that language is used, a faithful servant of the creator, Yahweh God. Listen to three verses under the Psalm 119 Lamed stanza that begins. Listen to this. Forever, O Lord, your word, that's where we're going to go after a bit here. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. So we're back to the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands. Then this final statement of putting both heavens and earth together and the standing of the earth, by your appointment, they stand, both heavens and earth, this day, for all things are your servants. They're faithful. All those created things are faithful. But then comes mankind, the crown of those things. And what happens? He indeed took all of this, swept it aside, and bought into the lie and plunged the race into alienation from God that stiff arms all these broadcasting features of the heavens above, the earth below, and all that God is broadcasting to us. So, unfortunately... <laughs> We cannot, you know, 
take this and say, oh, just look at the stars, look at all around you, and you can get saved, resistance center. It ain't going to happen. They're going to be persistently resistant. The human heart takes this self-disclosure in the world and stifles it. It won't let it have effect to say that I must submit my soul to the Creator. Now, here's the point that we're going to stop. And we're going to come back. So now before we go on to the second part of Psalm 19, namely his self-disclosure in the Word, we've got to make a pit stop. And it's an important pit stop. And the pit stop, before we get to the highway interchange of Psalm 19, is found in Romans 1. So flip over there a little bit, stick a piece of paper in Psalm 19, because we'll be back. We're especially going to focus upon 118 and following in the first chapter of Romans. And I want to begin with a strategic transitional passage, <clears throat> which is verses 16 and 17, which is very familiar territory for all of us. We know it well. Listen, first of all, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, as it sets up 18 and following. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, the good news, is the power of God, the dynamic of God, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Wow, that's exciting. It is good news. But... Paul can't go on and say, okay, let me tell you more about the good news. You're not ready for the good news until you know how bad the bad news really is. Because what's going to happen is that you're anticipating the good news and the righteousness of God and everything else. And then verse 18 said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Whoa, that's a big shift downward. No, it's necessary. As a matter of fact, if you study the Bible, especially the New Testament, it's so clear. The bad news always comes before the presentation of the good news. Always. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Bad, bad news. Dead in trespasses. Then comes the but God. Titus chapter 3. Bad, bad news. Then comes the good news. The book of Romans is just like that. So he, he anticipates coming to the good news and explaining it, but he doesn't go back to it until chapter 3, verse 21 and following. Because we need to understand how truly bad the bad news is in verse 18 of chapter 1 through chapter 3 and verse 20. So it's important, you see, it begins with this. It's like a, this is an A line, then you go to a B line. Instead of going there and saying, oh, we're in the good news now, continue to be. No, you go back and you pick up another dose of that bad news before you go back to the A-line in 321 and following. So it's very important we understand that. So bad news, good news structure leads into the bad news that is explicated, especially in verse 18 and following. <clears throat> and it begins with the, the wrath of God, the steady reaction to a holy God against sin 
and sinners. And it's upon these people, for the wrath of God is revealed. Notice another revelation, self-revelation of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, that's the heaven of heavens, God's very throne, against all ungodliness. This passage is loaded with unwords. It takes a quality like righteousness, puts an un in the front of it, unrighteousness. It negates that quality. And by the way, that quality in the communicable attributes was established in the, in the Imago Dei, the image of God and man. And yet man in the fall has turned it on its back and all of its ugliness. And all these unwords come in. So watch the unwords. They're crucial throughout this passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the most significant statement of this whole series of chapter 1 that goes through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> of men, here's how they're characterized, ever and always characterized by this, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness or by unrighteousness. So you got three unwords right there, ungodliness and two unrighteousness, and they are ungodly and they're unrighteous and they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, characterizing activity ever and always suppressing it, incarcerating it, putting it in a box, sitting on the lid of the box. Don't let it out. Well, what truth particularly is being put in a box and locked out and won't have any effect on sinful suppressing man? Because that which is known about God, you remember that was statement, he made it known through what he created? That which is known about God is evident within them or among them, for he made it evident to them. And again, we pick up the great reality of the first six verses of Psalm 19, especially. A little more explanation, verse 20. For since the creation, ah, of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen this is not foggy. It's not unclear. As I said, it's an overhead and all-around jumbotron with HD of the ultimate quality. It's clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, the creation itself. In other words, mankind is culpable for that clarity of God, the creator's self-disclosure in the universe and the world. But they're suppressing it ever and always. Won't let it come through because of the sin. Therefore, notice what it says at the very end. So that they are without excuse. Another unword here. They have no defense. This is a word for apologetics with a negation on it. They have no apologetic, no answer they can give back, no reason. They are caught dead to rights in their sinful resistance of all of that that God has revealed through his self-disclosure in the world. Then verse 21. We also have to think as we move into verse 21, remember how we got in this mess? Grandpa and Grandpa, Adam and Eve, Grandma Eve, and, and how that plunged not only them, 
but the whole race into this sinful condition? So we have to think here, both the one, Adam, and the many, all of us in their sinful lineage. Verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their thinking processes became empty, void. So they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart, the core of man's meaning where he's responsible, was darkened. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 pick up on this also. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, verses 24 and following have three choruses of God delivering them over. And this is one of those things where it's lex talionis, judgment in kind, and it's like this. You want this, rebellious creatures? You got it. You want this? You got it. That's your judgment. You've broken allegiance to me, your creator. So you want it? I'm going to give it to you. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, another unword, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, literally. So the truth of God was all around them being broadcast by the wondrous creation, and they exchanged it for the lie, Genesis 3. And worshiped and served the creature, or you could say creation, so creation or creature, so it's the same word for both of them, rather than the creator. We're going to turn from the creator who did all of this to broadcast his mightiness and his glory and his honor, and, and we're going to worship that and not the one who created it all. And then a little addition there, who is blessed forever, to be praised forever, amen. Then another one of that chorus, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, literally against nature against how God has established it. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Third, you want it, you got it. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, the core of thinking process. All their thinking is perverted and absolutely depraved and wicked and convoluted. To do those things which are not proper, being filled with, here it comes again, all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, gossips slanderers, haters of God, Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, all those unwords. And although they knew the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, 
but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. <clears throat> and by the way, that last statement is becoming so much more characteristic of the declining society in which we live. It's things that are just, had been previously unthinkable in a society's kind of outlook, and now it's all over the place. Whether it's this homosexuality it's talking about here and everything else, but now everybody else around there is applauding them. That's verse 32. It goes from bad to worse, as Paul wrote about. So as you look at this, and, and this is just the tip of the iceberg about the bad news and the rejection of the good news and God's self-disclosure, you understand that as glorious and clear and mighty and HD quality that the first six verses of Psalm 19 really represents. It can't save people, not because it's insufficient, because of this is the resistant heart of humankind. And as S. Lewis Johnson said in a series of articles concerning Romans 1, he said, conclusion, the Bible of nature cannot save, not because it's insufficient to show the glory of God, but because they knew God and turned it off and constantly suppress it, put it in a box, incarcerate it, they throw away the key, once it's in jail, they sit on the lid of the box and they nail down the lid. So it's insufficient, but what is sufficient? For the superiority of the kind of revelation that can get through, we gotta go back to Psalm 19, verses seven through 14. <clears throat> Here in these verses, we see God the Savior's special self-disclosure in the Word. So now we focus upon the Word of God. That last song we sung by Martin Luther really puts the focus on this. This is clear, sufficient, and efficient. So it comes with sufficiency attended by the Spirit of God, and all of that is showing that this is the only thing that can break through mankind's resistance of the self-closure of the creator in the universe surrounding us. Now, as we look at verses 7 and 8, like David, we must begin by acknowledging the attributes and the power of the word. And he begins by using different terms for the word of God, for God's self-disclosure in the Bible. And the Bible with these words, you can consider it like a diamond the whole thing is the Word of God, the written Word of God, the Bible. And these different words are synonyms, and it's like you turn it and you get the different facets and the hues out of it. So these are words for the Word, standing for the whole Word. But they contribute to the dimension of the whole diamond and give you a certain dimension of perspective on this hue has this color, this one has this brilliance as we move around. So we're going to see some of these terms. <clears throat> Actually, in Scripture, there are eight of them. There are several used here, but not all eight of them. So one of the things we need to notice also here, the attributes of the words are so important to show what the totality of written revelation is about. Now, as we move in to verses 7 and 8, and looking at these attributes and the power of the word of God, we see interesting poetic parallel structure. You see two verses here with four elements to them and each has a parallel within them. So you have four elements to them, and then you have the first line of each element begins of what the Word of God is, what a particular term for the Word of God, showing its quality, 
and then what it does. This is magnificent. So it's going to begin with a synonym for the word, and then it's going to talk about what that word accomplishes in reality in people's lives and how it has the sufficiency and efficiency to accomplish that. And these are all causatives. God makes this happen through the instrument of his word, obviously attended by the spirit. So beginning with that first couplet, its instruction produces change in the first part of verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's what it is. And by the way, this term for law is not just do this, don't do that. This is a holistic term because the root of this word means to point out or show the way. It means direction for life and highways and byways of life. And it is direction, instruction, the totality of what the Bible does. So don't lock it into do's and don'ts, not just the Ten Commandments or something like that. It includes that, but it's bigger than that. So this is direction for life. <clears throat> so the law of the Lord, the direction, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. It has solidity. It has integrity. It, it has firmness to it. And then what does it do? Effectually, on it. it restores the soul. This is the word group that comes for repentance, of turning somebody around. It turns around the whole person. So it effectually turns the person around in a 180 away from that locking up the truth to seeing now with new eyes of what God is broadcasting the clarity of his word. Second little couplet there in verse 7. <clears throat> the testimony of the Lord. This is a word that talks about the word bearing witness to its author, its divine author. So it bears witness to the author. So the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's trustworthy. You can count on it. And then effectually, what does it do? It makes wise the simple. Makes wise the simple. By the way, we have a New Testament illustration of that in a testimony of Paul about Timothy. Let me just read. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read 2 Timothy 3.15 as Paul reminds Timothy of this very fact. From childhood, you, that is Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the word of God at that time, the Old Testament, which are able, they're sufficient, they can do, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here it is, making wise the simple. So it was right there in Psalm 19. So its instruction produces change. Its witness instills wisdom. Now, as we move on to verse 8, the first part of it, its oversight brings satisfaction. The precepts, these are sort of governing kinds of elements there, guidance, somebody that comes alongside and leads you the right way. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're level, they're smooth, they're not convoluted. They're not going to take you on a wild goose chase of this roadmap of life. They're going to straighten it out. They're going to patch the holes. So the precepts of the Lord are right. That's what they are initially, innately. Then here's what they cause. Rejoicing the heart, bringing joy to the core of the being of the person. It mediates that to the heart and center of the meaning of a man. And then finally, the regulation that represented here by this word generates illumination. 
So you have here the commandment. Normally you think, oh, that's, that's sort of stifling. I, I, these do's and don'ts and don't do this or anything. No, uh, th this is a good thing when you put it in perspective. This commandment is pure. It's 24 karat gold proof. And then what does it do? It enlightens the eyes. It, it causes them to have the light of the darkness of sin. It breaks through that darkness and that resistance. So we can see these, these couplets are particularly significant in verses 7 and 8. And they talk about not just the superiority of the word, but the efficacy and the sufficiency of God's word. Now, as we move into verses 9 through 11, also like David, in these verses, we need to grow in our appreciation for the word. And this appreciation is based, first of all, on the nature of the word of God in verses 9 and 10. Listen to the first part of verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Fear of the Lord here is not technically a word for the word, but it represents the word in response to that word. You respond in the fear of the Lord, so you respond in an appropriate way to what the word is testifying about its author. So the fear of the Lord is a response to it, and it's clean. It, it is something, again, that's moral, perfect, in dimension there. There's no impurity in it whatsoever. Then in the second part of verse 9, it continues and talks about like this. The judgments of the Lord are true. They, they are solid truths. They, they are steadfast. They're dependable. They're reliable. And they are righteous, tzedek, righteous altogether. Put them all together, and there's nothing unrighteous whatsoever in it. That's the antidote for the unrighteousness of Romans 1 that comes through the instrument of God's word that can turn that person around and give him life, whereas the creation itself, because of resistance, can't do that. And then as we move on, <coughs> excuse me, this appreciation is also based on the nurture of the word of God. In verse 11, the first part of it, it is God's instrument of instructing or admonishing or warning. This is what God uses in a loving sense to keep us on track. Moreover, by means of those commandments, by means of those, it is how God operates in us to help us. So the element here that you can see, the fact is they're proved that they're more desirable than gold. Yes, fine gold, much fine gold, sweeter than honey. All those things are appreciative. And then it talks about by means of all of those, your servant is warned. This is something good. Look out, danger ahead. It's an instrument of flashing danger. It's a detour sign. In keeping them, so furthermore, in obeying them, this is a word for obedience, in obeying God's judgment, it is great gain or reward, more than anything like gold or fine gold of verse 10, and better than the satisfaction of honey and honeycomb, any of that. Now, as we move on to the last verses here, 12, 13, and 14, we should, as David is extolling us, be welcoming, welcoming the application of the word. First of all, being, as we say, in the word exposes our sin. It, 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 it takes all of its ugliness and, and it shows how ugly it is from God's perspective. And it begins with a rhetorical question that 
not as only asked here, asked here <clears throat> but throughout the Bible. Who can discern his errors? Errors here is that your irrational wanderings and movings and direction all over the map that is not good. It's just terrible sinfulness depicted as like a drunken man staggering all over. So who can discern his errors? And, and you think about that, and Job asked that question, and the associates of Job asked that question throughout the book. The bottom line is, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody on their own can do that. You just can't figure it out yourself. You know, David even said in Psalm 139, the last verses, you know, help me, keep me on track. Take some of these things that I can't see and, and, and help me avoid those things. He knew what the you know, outward infractions were and the big rebellious kind of things were, but, but he wants to just beware of any of that. So as you see these errors, then it says, equip me from hidden faults. Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, you know, I, I tried to judge myself, but I can't get a perfect judge in my own heart. You know, I'm supposed to examine myself, but God is the one that looks at the motives. And by the way, that's what Jeremiah 17 is all about. The human heart is desperately wicked, convoluted, perverted, twisted. And then it goes on and said, who can know that heart? No human being can know his own heart. Verse 10 goes on. I, the Lord, test the heart, literally the kidneys and the mind there. God can do that. And he does it through the instrument of his MRI, his infallible written word. So we can see how strategic this is in its efficacy here. So who can discern his errors? Acquit me from hidden faults. Keep me back also. These are the high-handed sins. Your servant from presumptuous sins. Then he said, let them not rule over me. And when you answer those prayers, God, when you keep me back, when you let them not rule, it's only then I will be blameless. A word for have basic integrity. It's the word that was challenged, God used to challenge Abraham, have integrity. It's used of Job in Job chapter 1. So once God answers the prayers of keeping servant back from presumptuous sins and then never letting them to rule over him and guide him, be king over him, then you'll have integrity. And also consequence, <clears throat> I shall be acquitted of great transgression, great rebellion here. David knew about that. Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 51, verse 1. Again, David pulling all these pieces together and sees the efficacy of the word working in his own life and now passing that on to the community of God's people and even for us today. Then comes this sort of the climax here, verse 14. This last prayer is one of my favorites. It's just one of those that is so important that we almost... Think like this and pray like this every day. And, and he, he addresses it now, not just to the creator, not just to the savior in general, but he has a threefold noun of direct address. Yahweh. Yahweh God. So, Lord, all caps, my rock that pulls in, especially Deuteronomy in, in Moses' song there, all of that pulls that in. Solid rock, when I'm standing on you, I'm not shaken. And my redeemer, my kinsman, my near one who comes close to me to redeem my soul. So you have three direct addresses of God. Lord, rock, 
Redeemer. And here's the prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. It's a term that was used of acceptable sacrifices, going with the right heart and providing the right animal that was blameless. And so you can see that you have now. Let that be acceptable in your sight. Both the words that come out of the mouth and the source of those words are the heart. So much important not to leave that out. You remember Matthew chapter 12? Let me just read a few verses of that parable that Jesus talked about there. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because they come out of the heart. They're generated by the heart. And you have statements like that in Mark 7, Matthew 15, talking about out of the heart come all of these things. And you're going to give an account for that. God hears the words, and he goes deeper and sees the source of it in there. So, may all of these be for acceptance, literally. Acceptable to you, O God, because you are enabling through your word and using that effectually. So, unquestionably, God's special revelation is superior and sufficient for salvation and sanctification. And the Bible is God's powerful instrument that produces eternal life, spiritual life. Case in point, <clears throat> the Thessalonians. Just one verse. First Thess 2.13. Paul said, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. What's that word of God? What is it really? The word of God, which also effectually performs or operates its work in you who believe. It is the effectual instrument that shows how superiority of the Bible and what it means to us for eternal salvation and our ongoing sanctification. So what the Bible of nature can't do, God using his word can do in resistant hearts. And what I like to do, um, well, I don't have a lot of time, but permit me to do this. Permit me to just give a thumbnail sketch of one dimension of my personal testimony. Okay, and sort of indulge me on this. Back in Romans 1.25, I don't want you to turn there, but remember what it said there. I'll just take the excerpt that I want to focus on. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I was brought up by an atheistic dad who loved science, which is really scientism, a religion. And um, I was steeped in evolution and all those things. But even beyond that, my God was sort of fishing in the outdoors and way up in northern Wisconsin, northern Minnesota, Ontario. And, and that was my worship temple up there. 
And I remember, you know, as being 10 years old, going up there and, and just, Dad, wouldn't we have to go, we really have to go back to Chicago? I don't want to go home. And I'd go out there the last night, go out on the pier, and tears would flow down my eyes and everything else. I'd say, oh, I'm looking at the creation, everything else, and I'm worshiping it. You know, I'm looking all around, and this, this is my... This, this is my worship center, and this is, these are my gods, you know? And, and I, I just loved it up there so much. And I was worshiping the creation and not the creator until God, until God, through the reading of his word and reading it several times, through the Bible three times, through the New Testament seven more times, watching my wife-to-be, who was a godly Christian, and her godly grandmother, but the efficacy of the word taking this darkened heart that, that worshiped the creation and took that suppression of truth and let it out of the box so that creation could be creation and speak of the glory of God. And the spirit using the word of God could effectually operate in his amazing grace and mercy and change my heart. And I can go up there. I still love to go up there. But I can go up there now with 2 Corinthians 5.17 glasses. And what I thought was the most brilliant thing i ever seen in my life, it's got new hues and everything else, knowing who created it. It was Yahweh God, the creator. And now I can see through special revelation, the natural revelation of what it was intended to do. And my suppression was taken away. And I can see the brilliant colors in all of it and worship the God who's creator. By the way, in the synopsis of Revelation we had, it's interesting that we put a focus upon salvation, God's work of the Spirit using his word, which is absolutely crucial, the spirit of the Bible. But it's interesting how with new lenses in our eyes spiritually, how it talks about worshiping the creator as he should be working, as creator in the book of Revelation. And you'll see some of those great worship hymns sung by the angels and all the elders and by the bodies of believers, ethnically and multi-ethnically, and they can now focus upon creation and know who the creator is spiritually because they've been changed by the gospel of Christ. They've been changed by the spirit using the superior instrument of the word of God, sharper than any two-edged, by the way, Hebrews 4.12 is better translated any two-edged surgeon's scalpel. Same word that was used in the medical domain for two centuries B.C. and two centuries A.D. Because God cuts out hearts of stone and he transplants hearts of flesh. And his instrument, his scalpel of doing that is right here, the superiority of the Bible. Let's pray.